Father, we take a moment to still our hearts before you. We thank you for the written word of God and how it reveals the incarnate word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we, we come in with schedules and burdens and busyness and all kinds of reasons for our minds to wander. But I pray, Lord, that you would give us, uh, Lord, an attention to your word in the same way we will behold your glory when it finally happens face to face at the sound of the trumpet. I ask, Lord, that you would renew our minds, that we would think your thoughts even in the area that you've led us to look at this morning. We thank you for the book of Proverbs, Lord, practical wisdom for everyday life rooted in God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Lord, help us to choose the part of fearing the Lord. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to begin with a question. Can anyone here mention the two most recent famous political slogans that have been on the political landscape? What are they? What's the first one? Make America great again. I'm judging you for that, okay? And what's, what's the other one? What's the other one? Come on. And I'm judging you for that. Build back better. Now, I want to lay out a slogan this morning that I think is less political, but clearly and unequivocally biblical. And because of that, one in which people on every side of the aisle should agree with. We should make aging great again. Y'all with me? Because the reality is, unlike in the East where people tend to have a much higher view of older people, it's just true, there's an honor that's given people in the East more than in the West. There is a respect for authority that is often lacking here. There is an understanding that there is much wisdom in older people, but I would say in our culture, there is a much lower view of, of older people. Older people are soft, often seen as outdated, antiquated. Why would we listen to them? They don't know history like us. And even Chris was sharing with me the other day at work, he's one of the older guys there, there doesn't seem to be any respect for older people. They're just as rude sometimes with older people as they are with younger, if not more. And I would say, just by way of introduction, I think there are two, two prevailing dynamics that reveal that we do have a low view of older people and aging. Dynamic number one is this. There is, in our culture, an obsessive pursuit of perpetual youth. You ever notice that? This obsessive pursuit of perpetual youth. Programs um, galore. Products galore, all promise to stop the hands of time, if not moving back two decades. So if you're in your 60s, well, you can be in the new 40s. And there's no shortage of money thrown after this stuff to the tune of $59 billion a year are spent on anti-aging products. And it is estimated that that total will skyrocket by 2030 to $400 billion a year on anti-aging products. 
in addition to the creams and machines and regimes, there's Botox and there's plastic surgery. But perhaps the most over-the-top illustration of our infatuation with pursuing perpetual youth and the resulting diminishing view of older people is the case of he who was known as the splendid splinter. Anybody know who that was? Nobody here? Chris would if he were here. Ted Williams, arguably the greatest hitter baseball has ever known, the last guy to bat 400. He actually had a career average of 344. You say, why do you care? I just want to tell you that. By the way, he missed five seasons to fight in World War II and in Korea, three of his peak years. Like, like uh, Essie's grandfather, or father rather, was in World War II. That, that really wasn't the greatest generation, but I digress. At his death in the year 2002, his youngest son, John Henry, had his father's remains packed on ice and shipped to Scottsdale, Arizona, to the Alcorn Cryonics Lab, where his body to this day is immersed in liquid nitrogen in hopes that one day when, the, ten, when the, uh, the fountain of youth, if you will, is fully and finally discovered, his body can be reaminated, he can be brought back to life, and maybe once again he can patrol a right field there in Boston. Pretty crazy, right? And his, and his daughter, who also was going to do that, his youngest daughter said, we just want to be together in the future even if it is a slim hope. And in doing some research on this, I discovered there are 168 people immersed in liquid nitrogen. Some of them didn't have the money to pay everything, so it's just their heads. I know that sounds macabre, but that, that's the way it is. And then I think I read like 98 pets, including dogs, cats, and chinchillas. That must have been some kind of chinchilla to spend that kind of money. Now, obviously, that's over-the-top illustration, but does, is that not indicative and illustrative of this obsessive pursuit we have of perpetual youth? Now, here's dynamic number two. A devaluing of older people based on diminished output. The logic basically goes like this. Because older people can now do less, they're not worth as much. Maybe you've heard of Ezekiel, Ezekiel Emmanuel. Uh, in many ways, a brilliant man. He was the chief bioethicist under Obama's administration, the chief architect of Obamacare. But he said, and he said this many times, that a person at 75 years old probably shouldn't live any longer because they're going to drain more resources more than they put into a given system. And so he vowed when he hit 75, we'll see if this happens, he will, not, he will refuse all medical intervention, vaccinations, uh, antibiotics, and all the rest. It's interesting, there's another bioethicist who said that years ago. And yet when he turned 80, he got like a $100,000 operation on his heart. Maybe It's funny how that changes when your life is actually on the line. And by the way, that second dynamic, I think, has fed a, a growing acceptance of euthanasia as well as help make abortion widely accepted. Now, here's what I'm trying to say, just by way of introduction, that this obsessive pursuit of perpetual youth and this devaluing of older pe people because they can do less 
has revealed that we have a low view of aging in our culture. But beautifully, the Bible gloriously paints a different picture of aging. Because Proverbs 16.31, our anchor verse for this morning, says this. A gray head, I don't know what it says about bald heads, but a gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. What I want to do this morning, very simply, is give um, a word to everyone, a word to the church on that theme. And then a word to the older people. I'm not going to define older and younger because it's really all relative, right? Somebody older you, than you here and somebody younger. A, final, a third of all, I'm going to give a word to the youth or the younger. And then finally, a closing word to us all. Y'all with me? All right, here we go, here we go. So first of all, a word to the church. It's simply this. We need to embrace God's view of aging. Last week, I was with uh, Pastor Justin Smith on the west side of Michigan, Spring Lake, speaking at Emmanuel Free Church. We enjoyed lunch after the service, and I was sharing with him this upcoming uh, service on making, the sermon on making aging great again. And he told me that he preached on that a few months ago, going through Genesis when he hit Sarah, and he said he was absolutely um, blown away when he got to Leviticus 19.32, which I've read many times and I've never been blown away until he told me about that verse. And I'm like, oh, wow, that is in the Bible. What does Leviticus 19.32 says, say? It says this, strong words. You shall stand up before a gray head. And you shall honor the face of an old person. And then he goes on to say, and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall stand up. That's what he says. Stand up in front of an older person. It's a, it's a picture of, of, of respect and reverence, right? So clearly from Leviticus 19.32, part of fearing the God who identifies himself no less than three times in Daniel 7 as the ancient of days is to honor old people. In a culture that increasingly sees older people as burdens rather than blessings, we need to embrace what God says about the older person. Now think about the wisdom and the insight that older people have, right? If anything, for the, because of miles on the tires, and if anything, because of the struggles and the difficulties and the ups and downs of life's and all of its season. But that's not the primary reason we should honor older people. But think about how God has used older people in, in the overarching narrative of Scripture, the story of redemption. Think about Abraham and Sarah, right? You know that story. Think about Jesus being presented to the temple. Two people are highlighted in that scene. Anybody remember their names? Simeon. It was revealed to him by the Lord that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And there, Joseph and Mary bring baby Jesus into the temple for the presentation. He takes this baby, must have been alarming to Mary, takes this baby up in his hands and says, My eyes have seen your salvation. Now let your servant depart in peace. Remember that? And then this next figure is Anna, 
a widow of 84 years of age, and she said, it says that she was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Old people have been used remarkably in the story of redemption, but that is not the primary reason we need to honor old people. What's the primary reason we need to old, honor older people? Because God says so. Going right back to Leviticus 19.32, you shall stand up before a gray head and you shall honor the face of an old person and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. And I would add to that Proverbs 20, 29 before we move on to the second point, which says that the glory of a younger man is his strength, but that the splendor of an older man is his gray hair. That's remarkable, isn't it? it it's, it's connecting glory with a human being to their age. So we, number one, make aging great again by embracing God's view of older people. Make sense? Pretty straight, pretty slam dunk right there, right? Number two, here is a word to <clears throat> older people. Remember 1 Timothy 4.12? When Paul tells young Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers, I think it's in, in, in conduct, example, faith, purity, and love. I think it's fair to apply Paul's admonition to young Timothy, to older folks, don't you? So I say to older folks here, again, we'll, let, uh, we'll define that for ourselves. I say this. Let no one despise you for your age. Now here's what I'm not saying. I am not saying that means you need to try and be younger. I remember the first church I served at, I was the outreach pastor, seniors pastor, uh, Community Baptist Church in South Bend, Indiana years ago. And there was an older lady in my senior saint Sunday school class, bless her heart, who dressed far younger than her age. And I'm not going to give you examples of that, but I would just say it was patently clear, obviously ridiculous for all who saw it. But, you know, we can do that to ourselves in other ways. We can Uncle Rico ourselves. <laughs> Anybody know who Uncle Rico is? From the greatest cinematic masterpiece ever, Napoleon Dynamite. you got to check it out. He's this middle-aged guy who wants to show the young upstarts that he not only can keep up with them, he can outdo them. And I'll be honest with you, it's nice to hit a bomb off a 32-year-old thinking he can sneak an 80-mile-an-hour fastball behind you. But a couple weekends ago, I Uncle Rico'd myself. Went to see Ian's uh, team at Wheaton, Sean Adams, remember Sean Adams, he drove down from St. Louis, he was in town to see his country, uh, his son compete in a cross-country meet, and he said after the game, while we're waiting for the guys to clean up, go hang out and go get a meal, he said, hey, think you can throw a football 50 yards? I'm like, yeah, I used to throw a ball like 55, 60 yards. No, 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 four attempts, and I think I got it up to 43 yards. I was trying to be Uncle Rico, and I played the part. Now, it doesn't mean um, that you, you know, you, you're going to age, folks. We're going to age, right? We're going to slow down and not be able to do the things we used to or not to do them to the same degree physically and mentally and all the rest. And it's probably a good thing to try and stay, uh, you know, the slowing down as much as you can by staying active physically and mentally. That's all a good thing. But... 
Part of the dignity of aging is coming to terms with that. I'm still trying to figure that out. But when I'm telling you, let no one despise you for your age, what I'm saying, I think, is this. Don't live in such a way that people would say, now, how old are you? Does that make sense? Don't live in such a way people would say, now, how long have you been a Christian? Don't live in such a way where people would say, does that person really follow Jesus? Don't live in such a way where people would say, has that person retired from the faith? Don't live in such a way where people might say, wow, I can remember when they really were serving God and serving the local church. They had a fire in their belly. They're on, they're on spiritual retirement. Proverbs 16.31, I come back to again. It says in the ESV, a gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. But there's actually a, a kind of a conditional clause in there, which I think the King, King James actually brings out more, more, more fully. This is a translation of the old King James. A hoary head, which is another way of saying gray head, another way of saying gray. A gray head is a crown of glory. Now listen. If it be found in the way of righteousness. In other words, all older people should be honored because of their age and because they are still image bearers, but not every old person has a crown of glory, metaphorically speaking. That's, that's what he's saying right there. It's a conditional. A gray head is not automatically a crown of glory. Now, Charles Bridges wrote this great commentary, 1846, on Proverbs. Here's what he says. The white hair of ungodliness bespeaks ripeness for wrath. In other words, just like there are older people storing up wrath for themselves, Romans 2, or the younger people, there's also older people storing up wrath for themselves. So there is the if, the if it be found in the way of righteousness. Well, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means there has to come in time when I exchange my rags for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Whether you're six or 60 or 86, there has to come a time when you see yourself as a sinful person in the eyes of a holy God. But then you believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Because Jesus took the hit that we deserve on the cross and he did the Heisman on sin, death, hell, and Satan rising again on the third day. Proven he is who he said he is and could do what he said he would take away the sins of his people. That's where it begins, and then if it really has begun there, it's walking out that new life in Christ. It's actually now pursuing a life of righteousness. Have you done that here? Have you exchanged your rags for the righteousness of Christ, the imputed, gifted, credited righteousness of Christ? And are you seeking to walk as a 2 Corinthians 5.17, a new creation in Christ person? Abigail Dodd wrote a very insightful article entitled, How to Grow Newer When You're Not Growing Younger. Very relevant for this idea of 
Having exchanged your rags for the righteousness of Christ, now you're seeking to walk in righteousness. And she asked three questions. Question number one, what does it mean when the sunset years are spent addicted to Candy Crush and the latest gossip? Hmm, Good question, right? Question two, how will gray hairs be our God-given glory when we're terrified at the sight of them? Question three, what good is age if all it signifies is that the tiny seed of bitterness that sprouted in our 30s has grown a root system that undergirds our whole life? Now, what is she saying? She is not saying that you can't enjoy games and fun and recreation, right? But what she is saying is we should still be about kingdom work and kingdom purposes all the way to the end. She's not saying that we shouldn't try and look healthy and be healthy. But she is striking to this, to this truth, that we should embrace getting older, even appearance-wise. She's not saying with that third question that life is not going to give you plenty of opportunities to be bitter. It will. But that over time, that bitterness should turn our green faith in a much deeper, more robust, and mature faith. That's what she's saying. So I would like you to turn to Titus 2, 1 through 5, just to fill out this second point, a word to older people, let no one despise your age. Now these words are going to be a bit counter-cultural. I just drank somebody else's coffee because it's got sugar in it, and I don't use sugar. So whoever you are, I hope you're healthy. We will test my aging with that. Okay. Titus 2. Was that yours? Okay, all right. Titus 2. Again, these are some countercultural words right here. Titus 2. Paul writes to Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound or healthy doctrine. Now he takes up older men. Older men are to be sober-minded, sober-minded, not dull and boring, but sober-minded, dignified. The word dignified means, uh, the idea, the, the word carries the freight of living in such a way that your everyday deportment, your everyday conduct just naturally inclines people to honoring you and revering you in an appropriate way. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Some have said the faith refers kind of to his vertical relationship with his Lord, the love to his horizontal relationship to his brothers, and then steadfastness with himself, a man of discipline. Now he takes up women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. The word reverent can be used of a priestess in like, like, kind of like ancient uh, pagan religions. Obviously not talking about being a pagan here, but the idea is one who really understands that they are to practice the presence and represent the living God. Older women, you're to practice the presence of God. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, 
or slaves to much wine, they are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled. That word keeps on coming up. Pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. I think that fills out somewhat, scripture with scripture, what it means to be found in the way of righteousness. And we could just expound on that on and on. But I want to give you a few real-time examples in my life. I think, first of all, of an awesome, awesome man by the name of Charlie McNutt. He was the man under whose preaching I was converted my last year in the Marine Corps at a church plant just off the front gate of Camp Lejeune. He was actually kind of a fill-in uh, preacher because the other one was deployed. He was in his 80s. He had spent his life preaching in West Virginia to coal miners, and he preached powerfully. Under his preaching, I was converted. Here he is in his 80s, and he poured into me while he, the remaining months he was there. This man taught me how to pray. He taught me how to read the Bible. He was an older pouring into the younger, an exemplification of Proverbs 16.31. Wonderful, wonderful man. I can't wait to see him in glory. And then I think of Eldon and Carolyn Bergen. First church Susan and I were part of after the Marine Corps. This was Heritage Baptist Church in Bowling Green, Kentucky. We met in the basement of a realtor's office, real small church, almost made us look like a mega church. There's probably like 30 people on a good Sunday, maybe 40. But Eldon and Carolyn all the time would have us over for a meal on a Sunday night, on a Wednesday. They just opened up their lives to us, and they poured into us. But thus far, I'm just giving you the examples of people who were in the ministry. I want to talk to you about Roscoe Price. What a sweetheart of a man this, this guy was. This was the first church I went to serve vocationally at, Community Baptist Church in South Bend, Indiana. And, and while there, uh, I, had two, I had outreach pastor and seniors, which I never would have wanted to be a pastor of seniors. Now I wouldn't have traded that for anything. It was awesome. I loved it. We, we had a blast. We had a ball. It was so awesome. But we had like, it was a big church, and we had about 40 or so shut-ins. And my goal every month was to make it to visit for a nice visit with every shut-in, just to fellowship with them, read some scripture, prayer, and be with them. And Roscoe, who I think he had, he had worked at, um, oh, one of the local manufacturing plants since getting out of World War II for years, he took me under his wing to make sure that I could get to all these 40 homes spread out over South Bend, Elkhart, etc. And I just want to tell you, that man poured into me. Uh, he, he, you know, he, he was the one that was ministering to me, Roscoe Price. And he was in a lot of pain. He was on a, um, a Navy ship, World War II. He had fought off a kamikaze, the machine gun, a Japanese kamikaze pilot, and so his legs were full of, of, of shrapnel, but he, he would just hobble around and take me from place to place. What, he, he's an example, right, of being found in the way of righteousness. And what was interesting, in all those visits that I made, 40 or so shut-ins, a few of those people were honestly grizzled and bitter because of the difficulties of life. But others who had been through great difficulties like him just had the aroma of Christ around them. So it's been said, and I close the second point, probably the longest one. It's been said, I don't, I don't entirely buy into it, but I get the gist of it at times. It's been said that sometimes youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> All that energy and 
sometimes in different directions. I'm an example of that. But a far worse and tragic thing is for older age to be wasted on the older. So I just want to say, don't waste your aging. Don't waste your experiences, the ups and the downs. Make aging great again. There's this wonderful verse in Isaiah 46.4 where it says, they, the old people, certain old people, will be evergreen and full of sap. They shall declare, the Lord is my rock and my righteousness. What a banner that would be over somebody's life. Now, speaking of banners or epitaphs over somebody's life, I have third of all a word to younger people. A word for all, a word for older people, and now a word for younger people. Who here would say that they're younger? Would you raise your hand? All right, all right, all right. Oh, you're old. Okay, all right. <laughs> Any younger people here? All right. Me too. No, I like that, Julia. I like that. Now, I don't mean to sound, you know, all dark, but I want to say live with your epitaph in view. What do I mean by epitaph? It's an old way of saying like the inscription on a tombstone in the older years. They used to be a lot longer, you know. Uh, but it's basically um, an, a reflection on your life when you're gone. So here, here's what I'm saying. What do you want people to remember about you when you're gone? What do you want people to say about you when you've left the scene? What would it look like to live with your epitaph in view? Again, and I'm not saying here at all, don't, don't, don't be young, right? And don't be joyful and don't enjoy youthful seeds. I'm not saying that at all. But I do want to quote Abigail Dodd once again. She wrote, it's worth pondering this thing called aging. Because that is something every one of us is doing every moment of every day until we die. Right? This is not something we should just finally turn our attention to 20, 30 years down the road when we feel a bit older or when we enter a mid or late life crisis. No matter how old we are, we should be asking the question, how do I age with wisdom? Or as I'm putting it, how do I live with my epitaph in view? Now, I'm going to close this third point real quick with just three scriptures that I, I wish you would write down if you're a younger person and commit to memory. Here's the first one. Proverbs 31.30, which Nick will be closing our Proverbs series on with in a few weeks. It's, it goes like this. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Charm is deceitful. Handsomeness is vain. But a man who fears the Lord is to be praised. Here's simply what I want to say. Be less concerned, I'm not saying don't be unconcerned, but be less concerned about your reflection in the mirror and more concerned about your reflection of Christ. Can you imagine how that would impact the trajectory of a young person who that truth hooked into their heart? I want to be most concerned about my reflection of Christ. Second scripture, Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. 
before the days become evil. And there, the evil is actually, it goes on to describe metaphorically, the body breaking down, your teeth falling out, the shutters are getting closed, your eyes becoming dim. And I would say, don't think, you know, I'll get serious about God when I get older. You know, when I settle down, whatever, whatever that looks like. Don't, don't do that. No, 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 no. The way you live now is going to have an impact on the way you live then. Us older people would testify to that, for better or for worse. In fact, I would venture to say that for most people, life is going to get a whole lot tougher. I don't want to, you know, promise you lies. Life is going to get tougher, right? We live in a fallen world. Stuff happens. Probably the last, you know, five years of my life, you guys know my, it's some of the most difficult years of my life. I thought I'd be on cruise control now. No, baby, that's not the way it's been. So remember your creator in the days of your youth and lay that godly foundation right now. And then third of all, 1 Timothy 4.12, let me actually use Paul's admonition to Timothy in context. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. Now, I'm just going to leave that there. But I think if you, just, if you marinate on those verses and let those truths work your way into your spiritual bloodstream, it will pay rich dividends spiritually for the rest of your life. Now here's a final word for us all. Because of what Jesus did for us, we can deeply cherish life without obsessively clutching onto it. So let's start with the deeply cherishing. Whether you're a Christian or not, sometimes we can get to places in our life where we're just trying to make it, right? Where we're just trying to endure. And if you're not there, you'll get there at some point in your life. It's just kind of the way life is. Or similarly, we can get to this, we can have this mentality, well, Life will finally be good when you get to that whatever milestone is. When, 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 when uh, you're able to grow your family or, or get married um, or get that job promotion or graduate from school, whatever it is. You, in other words, your view, life will be worth cherishing sometime if X, Y, and Z happen in the future. You understand what I'm saying? Not really cherishing life in that, in that space. But I want to remind you, Christian brother and sister, if, you, if God has done a saving work in your life, that's because he opened your eyes. You remember that? He literally opened your eyes. I remember when he saved me at age 26. But I'm going to go back when I, I was playing baseball back in college and, and, and I got contacts because I was having a hard time picking the ball up at night. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, trees aren't just green blobs. They got leaves. You know, all of a sudden, I had vivid and clear vision because my sight was improved. Well, that's conversion. It's not just that your sight was improved. You were given sight. You were, your eyes were opened up, enabling you to embrace Jesus Christ by faith in this beautiful work of regeneration. 
causing you to know the one who made everything and now see everything in a brand new light. Same things, new things, right? And, and giving you the purpose for which you live. With all the other subsidiary purposes, the ultimate purpose of a Christian is for the glory of God. And if you don't get that, you're going to be frustrated in whatever you do. And we remember that feeling. I remember, it, man, I was just walking on cloud nine at age 26. My sins taken away. It was at that, it, under uh, Charlie Livingston's preaching. And, man, everything was good. I couldn't imagine ever having problems in life after that. I've just been saved. <laughs> oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. So the honeymoon period is hit by, well, the realities of life in a fallen world, Right? And, and it's so easy then for all of us to go back to circumstance-rooted living, right? I feel as good as my circumstances instead of cherishing life. We go back, in other words, to seeing the world the way we used to be in the dark shadows of death, right? And living the way we used to, perhaps. But if we will allow it, and it's what I'm trying to do, I think in that space... Our faith can be fermented into something far better than it ever was in the past. Because our first faith, it was joyful and innocent, right? Beautifully so. But if we're honest, it was also naive and immature, right? And what happens then is you're hit with suffering, unfulfilled dreams. Unmet expectation, unanswered prayer, unanswered questions, and that joyful, innocent, but also naive and immature faith becomes a challenged faith, doesn't it? A do I really believe faith sometimes, right? A strained faith, an uncertain faith. And sadly, some people realize... Uh, reveal at that point that they never had anything but a spurious or a fake faith. Others, they have a real faith, but they stay there much longer than God would want them to stay there. They over-ferment. Because others look afresh into the face of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, that first faith is fermented into a much deeper and richer faith. And they're able to enjoy the stuff of life that they actually were in and never were in a, in, in a way before. Here, here's a quote. Such people love Jesus more now than ever. Less childish, but oh, more childlike. In wonder, love, and praise. You ever met an older person that has such a, it's not a childish, but it's a childlike faith. Like they really enjoy the Lord. There's wonder and love and praise. They know the end of the story. And by, by the way, knowing the end of the story doesn't Im immunize you from sorrow and grief. Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus, right? But did he not weep? So it doesn't immunize us from grief and all that. But in the grid of life, there's still things you can cherish as you wait for the glory to come. So I think because of what Jesus did, we can cherish life and not have happiness rooted in circumstances. 
on the other side of the coin, some people obsessively clutch onto life. Or, yeah, they clutch onto it obsessively. It's like, like it's all there is. Whereas those who stop cherishing life lose sight of what God has for them right now. Those who obsessively clutch on life lose sight of what God has for us in the future. And so we have our nice little bucket list. I don't think it's bad to have a bucket list. i got a few things I would like to do before I get promoted to glory. But do they perhaps subtly reveal that our understanding of forever is, meh, whatever. It ain't going to be like bungee cord jumping. It's not going to be like visiting the Grand Canyon. But Paul said, to live is Christ. Cherish life, to live is Christ. But to die is gain. Wow. And speaking of dying, we are dying. Last I checked, death rate, the mortality rate is 100%. You can Google that, and Google's usually not wrong, so you can check it out. See, as we slow down, we're reminded, man alive, a fall really did happen, right? Aging and death are re a result of sin. But that's why the Savior came, to reverse the curse. And Jesus is going to do like that what a billion years of evolving technology could never do in a cryonics laboratory in Scottsdale, Arizona. He is the first fruits of a coming resurrection. And we're going to be with him in a new heavens, a new Jerusalem, with him and each other forever and ever. Yeah. Well, I went and listened to Justin Smith's message somewhat on aging. Second, his second point was on aging in the, in the burial of Sarah. And he said something uh, that really caught me. He said the... Families being buried together in a cemetery, or churches in some cases, that's not just a sentimental thing. There's actually a theological statement with that. It's a theological expression of our union together in Christ, that we're part of forever family. We're going to go up together. So he said tongue-in-cheek in that message that at the next business meeting, he was going to propose they purchase a plot of land and do a church cemetery. So I want to propose we use that lot behind us, bought for $1 and $35 processing fee from the state of Michigan for a cemetery. I'm not sure we could get away with that. I think there's certain coding things. But he talked about the great getting up day coming. When at the voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet in Christ, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And he talked about like little IEDs going off everywhere, explosions in the dirt, bodies coming forth, high-fiving, chest bumping, whooping and hollering. We made it. We're going to come forth at the first fruits, <laughs> at him who is the first fruits of the resurrection at his call. Dirt flying everywhere as we are reunited, reunited with each other and him forever in Christ. So instead of pining away for the past, we can cherish the present with all of its grit as we long with confident expectation for the glory to come. 
I think as we embrace that mindset, we can make aging great again. It's a call to the church. Let's embrace God's view of aging. It's a call to older people. Let no one despise you for your age. It's a call to the youth. Live with your epitaph in view. And it's a call for us all that we can deeply cherish life without obsessively clutching on to it. This is the word of the living God. Father, how grateful we are about what Jesus says about death and aging and what it means to be older. I pray, Father, that you would use this word to be Velcro in somebody's mind and heart, that they can't live exactly the same way they were living when they walked in because of the truth that you presented them with. I pray for the older person who maybe feels <sighs> defeated. Maybe they have given themselves to sin. Lord, that they would understand that this man receives sinners, that they would confess their sin, put it under the blood of Christ. Pray for the one who maybe feels abandoned. They would remember the words that you said in Isaiah, that I will not forsake the elderly even when the hairs of their head become white. I will care for them and save them. I will deeply care for them. And I do pray for younger folks here, Lord, that, that yeah, they would, they would live with their ultimate calendar in mind. Yeah, Lord, that they would... They would care more about the reflection of Christ than the reflection in the mirror. And all of us would care about that. And I pray anyone here who has never truly turned from their sin and embraced the promises of Christ, that today they would do that for your glory and for our everlasting joy in you. We pray this in Jesus' name.